Our second lesson is taken from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4, verse 1 following. I, too, am reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. For forty days, while tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomsoever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall not force a test on the Lord your God. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. It's very appropriate that this day in which Linda was baptized, that we should be studying this particular passage of scripture. It's appropriate because immediately after the baptism of our Lord, you remember he had come to Jordan, and John, with commendable modesty, had shrank from baptizing him. And yet the Lord Jesus declared that it was necessary because he was to be identified with us in our needs, though he himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, was always without sin. And yet we know in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy he was to be numbered with the transgressors. And therefore he is to be identified with us in our need. And it behooved him to fulfill all of that which was required for righteousness. And so John baptizes the Lord Jesus. And you remember that there, there appeared uh, a dove descending upon him. And this uh, is to symbolize the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That there was a great voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my Son. And with those words ringing in his ears, the Lord Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit to the test. He is driven into the wilderness of Judea, barren and rocky and desolate. And here in that desert place, he begins to pray over the establishment of his kingdom. He is praying and he is thinking because he knows that there will be those men whom he will call out 
and to whom he will especially bring the word of God, and that there will not only be those 12, but that there will be 70, and there will be 120, and there will be 5,000, and that it will spread far beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth, he knows that he is to carry out all that God has commanded of him, for he realizes uniquely that he is God's son, and yet he is in human flesh, and for 40 days and 40 nights he fasts and he prays. And one of the great crises, one of the great tests of his life occurs as he begins to think of the establishment of his kingdom. One is always tempted along the lines of that which means the most to him. The scientists who study earthquakes, and we have so many earthquakes now, tell us that they cannot tell you when an earthquake will occur. But because of fault lines in the crust of the Earth's surface, they can tell you where it is likely to occur. And one is tempted by the devil along the lines of that which means the most to him. And what meant the most to the Lord Jesus Christ was the carrying out of the purpose which God had committed to him, the establishment of his reign over the minds and the hearts and the lives of men and women and seeing them delivered from the power of Satan. And so Satan, another word for the devil, our adversary, comes to the Lord Jesus to tempt him. There used to be a time in which it was fashionable to laugh at the idea that there was a, a malignant and evil personality, such as the adversary, such as the devil, such as Satan, who tried to work his evil works, but that's no longer so. I have back in my office a whole set of papers that I just received from Dr. William P. Wilson of the Department of Psychiatry at Duke. And Dr. Wilson, an eminent psychiatrist and uh, one of the finest scientists in America, was converted about six years ago. And where he used to take Bibles away from patients who came into the psychiatric ward at Duke Medical Center, he now gives them Bibles. And he now talks to them about the Word of God. And Dr. Wilson has written some especially important papers that deal with the work of the adversary, the evil one, this spiritual being who has perpetrated so much havoc in the minds and hearts and lives of so many people. And the psychiatrist can no longer account for many things from simply a behavioral standpoint. But now they are beginning to look back toward the scriptures for a system of absolute values by which to live and for an explanation of all the havoc that's being wrought in the world. And so our Lord Jesus confronts the evil one. He is not tilting with windmills, but the temptation is very real. And the first temptation comes to him when he still has those words that he is the Son of God ringing in his ears. And then after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, in intense hunger, painful hunger, Satan says to him, if, 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 if you're the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. 
if that voice is really true, and if you are God's son, then why not make yourself a little lunch? Take this stone and turn it into bread. Surely God would not want you to go hungry. God would want you to satisfy this elemental appetite, this gnawing pain that's in you. This is the voice of the tempter speaking. And Jesus replies from the old book of Deuteronomy. He replies from scripture. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone. And he will not disobey God. Now then the church and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ can be diverted from its task of preaching salvation by concentrating upon being the bread man, establishing an economic kingdom. Jesus could be the economic Messiah. And Satan is saying, surely you don't want people to go hungry. And our Lord Jesus was sympathetic with hungry people. You know, I've often wondered when I read about those crowds of as many as 5,000 men listening to Jesus preach. Why would there be so many men? Why would they not be in the fields working? He lived in a time of extreme poverty in his little occupied country. He worked for 30 years in a carpenter shop with saws and hammers and chisels and awls and planes and nails and boards. Jesus knew what it was to work. He talked about people standing around idle in the marketplace looking for a a way to earn their bread for one day. We know that on occasion he fed a multitude with loaves and fishes, but we also saw immediately what happened, that they wanted to come and make him king. And Jesus said to them, You have come to me not because you saw a sign from God and because you believe in my words, but because your belly was filled with the fish and the loaves of bread and you want to make me a king in this way. You see, he knew this wouldn't work. This wouldn't work. He wouldn't bribe us into following him. If we could supply food enough for every man, woman, and child on the planet Earth, there would still be wars and hatred and evil perpetrated. Now this does not mean for a moment that the church is not to ally itself with every program for alleviating human misery and need, because we are. But this is always the way it is with sin. Sin takes a legitimate appetite and then perverts the fulfillment of it. Jesus' concern for the hungry was a thing which his compassion and sensitive nature would normally be attracted to. But he will not satisfy either his own hunger or the hunger of someone else at the behest of Satan. And so here he lifts up the shield of faith 
by which the fiery missiles that Coach Wilhelmy read to us about are thwarted and knocked aside. He knocks away the darts of the evil one by saying, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone. What do you want most in life? If we took a poll of the American people, most people would want economic security. And yet that is not what the Bible teaches us to want. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, said the Lord Jesus, and these other things will be added unto you. And so it is baptism when he heard those words, you are the son of God. And then when the tempter comes to him saying, if you're the son of God, surely you wouldn't be hungry. Surely you wouldn't know pain. Jesus rebukes Satan and he cites scripture. Let me say this. There will come times in your life when tragedy that is unreasonable and unexplainable and cruel and hateful and hard will fall upon you. And you will be tempted to say, well, if I belong to Jesus, why does he let this happen to me? Why? 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 Some man whose son was killed in the war said, where was Jesus? Where was God when my son died on the battlefield? And a godly old minister said, God was the same place he was when his son died on the cross. God is working a purpose out that is not in keeping with our purposes. He is working his own will and purpose out in life. In the Anglican church, when you receive Christian baptism, the priest asks this question, Dost thou renounce the devil and all his works, the vain pomp and glory of the world, with all covetous desires of the same, and the carnal desires of the flesh, so that thou wilt not follow nor be led by them. And the candidate for baptism must answer, I renounce them all. That's a good statement of faith. And so the Lord Jesus renounces Satan's suggestion here. And he will not be tempted by what Satan says. And then in Luke's account of what takes place, Satan in a moment of time, takes Jesus for the second temptation up to a place where he can see all of the kingdoms of the world. Now this is all in a vision, in a dreamlike way. And Satan tempts him not only to be the economic messiah, but the political messiah. Satan says, think about it. Rome is here. The Grecian Empire has existed. The Persian Empire has existed. There are far corners of the world awakening. If you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all of this, all of these kingdoms of the world. And Jesus, who is to see to it that the good news of the gospel and his lordship is taken to the ends of the earth, was tempted by Satan to take a shortcut. You don't have to go to Calvary. You can come in league with me. And I will deliver you all of the kingdoms of this world. This too has always been a temptation of the church. Come in league with me, says Satan. I'll make it so much more comfortable for you. 
I'll make it so much easier for you. And the temptation here is to compromise. It's to compromise. To do something at Satan's behest. The Lord Jesus knows will not follow the work of God. He knows what Satan's meant to do. Satan's purpose is to destroy the kingdom of God. Satan's purpose is to keep out belief in your life. You cannot compromise with him. And that's why these absolutes are referred to here each time. In our study in our officer's class on the law of God, we have been studying the other night the Ten Commandments. The first four of those Ten Commandments deal with our relationship to God. If we try to have any other God, if we make anything that represents God, if we do not reverence his name, if we do not keep his day, we destroy the meaning of God in our own lives. We pervert it. And when we do the other six commandments that have to do with our home and with loving kindness toward our neighbor and with chastity and purity, all of the rest of them go by the board. So you cannot compromise with Satan. You cannot compromise with evil. And this is what the Lord Jesus teaches us here when he rejects Satan's temptation to give him all of the kingdoms of the world. You see, the establishment of his kingdom was what meant the most to him. And yet he'll take no shortcut, no wrong road to the kingdom. Life is made up of decisions. Many decisions are painful and hard. The decision that Jesus made there in this time of temptation meant that when the tempter comes back to him again in the garden of Gethsemane, where he sweats as it were great drops of blood, where he prays to his father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Every believer in Jesus must also follow him to the Garden of Gethsemane and in a fainter semblance die to self and live under the lordship of what Jesus would have him do and what his heavenly father would have him to bear. I love flowers as most of you know and I love shrubbery. There's a little song that I sometimes see put up in gardens that says uh, that, that there is nothing, uh, that, uh, what is it, the, the kiss of the sun for pardon, the song of the birds for mirth. I'm never nearer to God's face, and I'm nearer to God's face in a garden than any place on earth. Well, that's not true. It's a pretty little song. You're nearer God's heart in one garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane. You're nearer God's heart in that garden than you'll ever be any place on earth. When you say no to self and yes to Jesus and reckon him to be Lord of all things and that you're expendable in his cause and sacrifice your will to be obedient, that's when you're near, nearest to the heart of God. That's when you're nearest to the heart of God. 
I spoke with a budding young writer on Friday night, and she has great possibilities, I think, in writing. And we were talking about the dearth of great uh, literature. Why is it that in an age when people go to the moon, when they send missile, when they send rocket ships that go all the way to Mars and send back photographs, why is it that so few of the books that are being written will have any longevity, will last for any length of time? Why is it in this time when there is such great exploration of space, such dramatic technological discoveries, that no one comes forward with a great new novel that's going to last for years? But it's all so trashy, so trivial, and it doesn't last. And at least one great critic says it is because there is no clash with a strong moral code. We've let everything become so limp and gray that anything goes. And so the color and the drama that comes when there is a clash does not exist. We've done away, many people have, with moral absolutes. And so all you get is a limp gray scene that has no great fiber and granite to it, no pretender to pretense of greatness in it. And so Jesus gives us here the story of this conflict, which, by the way, he must have related to his disciples himself. No one was with him out there. I think he told them about this because he knew that someday they would be faced with a Gethsemane. He knew that one day Peter would be in Rome, and someone would say, Whither goest thou, Quo Vatis? Where are you going? And Peter would go back to Rome to be crucified head down. He knew that Paul would be in a dungeon in Rome and that one day he would be put to death. He knew that you would one day be faced with a loved one who had cancer or someone else who terribly disappointed you and broke your heart. And you would be tempted in the agony of your soul to think, why has this happened to me? Why? And he wanted you to know that you can trust him. No matter what happens, God will ultimately prevail and his purposes will be worked out. And so he wishes us to know that. And so there's no shortcut from Calvary. We die to self, to live to him. The third temptation, as Luke records it, is when Jesus is taken by the devil up to the pinnacle of the temple hundreds of feet up into the air, and he looks down on the courtyard of the temple, and there thronging worshipers have come, and Satan says, if you jump down from here, don't you remember what Scripture says? He, God, has given his angels charge over you, and they will intercept you before you hit the ground, and they'll bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus will not yield to Satan at this point, because it would be presumption. It would be saying, I'm going to force God to do this my way. Jesus reasoned that this would not be, and so he will not take Satan's method here. There are people always trying to, to do God's work in the devil's way. That won't work. William Golding, the same man who wrote The Lord of the Flies, wrote a tremendous book called The Spire, which I heartily recommend to our students here. In that you see a man with a noble ambition to erect a 
a spire atop a great cathedral. But do you know what he does? He allows Satan to come just as he does here and into that story there comes immorality and adultery and lying and murder and all manner of evil. You don't build God's kingdom that way. You build God king, God's kingdom in God's way. That means that my life is to be lived in obedience to the word of God. And that's important for us to keep in mind and to remember. Get God's point of view from his word. See to it that your mind is saturated with scripture. Three times Jesus cites scripture to Satan here. Go back to the scriptures to get God's point of view when you come to the crossroads. And no matter how, how it hurts, obey God. When those who made the Westminster Confession of Faith were writing down those great things which we believe, when they were citing who God is, when they were writing the principles of our faith, Again and again and again, one phrase kept recurring. Wretch me the book. Wretch me the book. Hand me the Bible. And so the shield of faith is there. Faith in God and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. A sword can be both an offensive weapon with which to fight Satan and a defensive weapon with which to deflect his blows. And so the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Dr. Graham spoke a moment ago about Luis Palau. And I've seen Dr. Graham many, many times citing the authority of Scripture. And Scripture, he says, has become for him like a, a sword, like a rapier in his hand with which he could work. And so it is. And this is the way our lives are to be lived. Under the Lordship of Christ, in agreement with his Word. This is what we need to keep in our minds and in our hearts. The garden of, of temptation and the garden of Gethsemane are always places where Satan comes. He wishes to destroy our faith in God and in his word. He wants to take away from us the joy of salvation. But when we are faithful to God and faithful to the truth he has revealed, Satan's way never, never works. I thought about this young Christian woman who joined the church a moment ago who was baptized. I remember something that was very sweet of a little girl in a Sunday school class who was asked by one of her friends what she did when she was tempted. And she said, when Satan comes and knocks at the door of my heart, I go ask Jesus to answer the door. And when Jesus opens the door and Satan sees him, he always says, excuse me, I'm at the wrong place. <laughs> now, when Jesus comes into our heart and he is Lord of our life and we govern our lives by God's word, and Satan comes knocking at the door, and we answer him with scripture. He will say, excuse me, I'm at the wrong place. And Jesus is waiting this day to receive any of you who have never acknowledged him as Savior and Lord.